Our scripture passage for this evening comes from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 18, as we read verses 6 through 30. Hear now the word of God. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and, and this saying displeased him. He said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David, because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter, Merib. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, who am I? And who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merib Saul's daughter should have been given to David. She was given to Adriel of Maholothite, the Maholothite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged on the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along, along with his men and killed two hundred of the Philistines. And David brought their four skins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michal for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David, 
So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this evening. Let's pray together. Our Father, you love us. You love your people. And you have only good for us. So would you expose our hearts, and especially would you reveal any idols that we might have. Send your spirit to work life-changing, soul-transforming power within each of our souls and families and even our nation. Would you do this tonight by the spirit and by the word of your son? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. When tonight's passage begins, consider the situation. God has rejected Saul. Um, David has entered the picture, and he has had his victory over Goliath. And now as they re-enter uh, Saul's uh, 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 place of operations, Saul has to share the glory with David. And so what starts to accumulate in, is this perfect recipe for paranoia and jealousy and fear. It's this moment of true danger within Israel. Because whether the people know it or not, the nation of Israel is slowly turning into a tinderbox centered around really this one man, Saul, and his poor leadership and his faithlessness. And so all of these things, all of these problems in the life of Saul have sort of begun to come to a head, and they will continue to come to a head in the next few chapters. And so tonight, I simply want us to look at this moment in Saul's life. And in the first two points tonight, I want us to be warned of the perils of jealousy, and then of the power of fear. But then finally, I want us to rejoice and be reminded of the protections of humility. The protections of humility. We have a lot to learn from the vices of Saul and from the virtues of David. If God would give us eyes to see and ears to hear tonight, would he be so blessed? Or would we be so blessed? First tonight, we see the perils of jealousy. Uh, David and Saul are re-entering the city in, in a typical fashion. The, the people are out and they are celebrating. Uh, Goliath is dead. The great threat to Israel is eliminated. And, and not only that, but the king has returned. This is a time to rejoice. All is well, all is good, until Saul hears the song that the people are singing. And the song that the people are singing is... Saul has struck down his thousands. You can imagine Saul being very happy to hear that. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. The smile is gone from Saul's face. You don't need much imagination to see why this would be upsetting to Saul. Yes, it's true, David won this victory. You can imagine Saul thinking, but I'm the king. In a sense, I'm the one who won the battle, right? I'm... He's working for me. I sent him. He's my subject. Why aren't I getting the credit for lining up the armies 
and getting this whole situation ready for David. This song is fake news. You know, really, if you think about it, I sort of teed this whole thing up. I, I, I alley-ooped the ball to him. All, all he had to do was show up and put the ball in the net. You can imagine how Saul's thinking goes here. You see, Saul has a whole narrative in his own head. This is my life. This is what things are like. This is what my little world is like. But when you get right down to it, he is a man who lives and thrives on the praise of of others, and he cannot bear to see even a little credit go to David, even if David does deserve it. He can't bear to see it. This is a, a very nasty but very real part of fallen human nature, right? That we hate to see others get praised even when they deserve it. Even when they deserve it, we hate to see them get praised. Um, I like to a band from the 80s called The Smiths. I don't know if any of you, any of you like The Smiths, but uh, I, I'm a fan of The Smiths. And, and it's not because they're necessarily virtuous. Um, the, the lead singer of the band is a man named Morrissey. Uh, apparently no last name, he's just called Morrissey. Um, but he's this very honest songwriter who doesn't care whether you dislike him or not. He's very curmudgeonly, very selfish, and he lets that come through in his lyrics. Um, you know, people think of Bono and they think of him as wanting to feed the children and stop AIDS and end global, global poverty and all of those sorts of things. But, um, you know, you're not going to think that when you, when you think of Morrissey. You know, Morrissey is more likely to write a song about how he doesn't care about orphans. Uh, that's just the kind of person that he is. Well, Morrissey has this song, and the song is called, We Hate It When Our Friends Become Successful. It's a very catchy song. Uh, the lyrics, very bitter very uh, almost angry, the, the, the music very cheerful. Um, and it's, I think it's just the most Morrissey song ever. It's the most Morrissey that you could possibly get. And, and I just wanna give you a line from the song to give you an idea. Um, and it runs along with what we're talking about here on this issue of jealousy. Morrissey says, we hate it when our friends become successful and if we can destroy them, you bet your life we will destroy them. If we can hurt them, well, we may as well. You see, it should have been me. It could have been me. Everybody knows. Everybody says so. And so, in his context, at least, it's a song about professional jealousy among singers and among musicians, right? But in our darkest moments, we, it may be that we might actually admit that there's something here that's true of us, right? We simply can't bear to see others succeed when we might actually say, it should have been me, it could have been me. What a poisonous thought that Saul here, right? Saul is entering the city with David and he's saying, it should have been me, it could have been me. I hate it when my friend becomes successful. John Murray says that there is this verse in Romans 12, and, and you probably know the verse. It's the verse that says, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And John Murray makes this point that this is one of the most difficult verses to obey. Not the weeping with those who weep part. He says it's very easy for us to imagine what it's like to have harm in your life, to have pain in your life. And, and so we don't have trouble with that. But he says, the thing we have trouble with is 
um, rejoicing with those who rejoice. Because if someone's rejoicing, it means something good has happened to them. And that good thing that's happening to them is something good that's not happening to us. And in many ways, it is very difficult to rejoice when someone else gets something that, in a sense, we wish it had been us. Matthew Henry says this. He says, envy is a sin that commonly carries with it its own punishment, he says, in the rottenness of the bones. I think, I think Saul could have told you this is absolutely true. Because in many ways, the rest of 1 Samuel is us watching Saul suffer under the punishment of this sin as it keeps eating him up from the inside out. He is experiencing the rottenness of the bones. But it gets worse than sour feelings. Church Father Clement reminds us that envy and strife have overthrown great cities and rooted up mighty nations. Isn't that what's happening? And isn't that what's in the process of happening here? In this case, envy drives a wedge between David and Saul, and envy eventually leads to a civil war. Clement is right. Envy has rooted up mighty nations. Isn't that the truth? Our, our private heart sin, that thing that we maybe nurse within ourselves and and uh, let ourselves have every now and then that we sort of help ourselves to, and it makes us feel so good. Well, it ends up not staying private. It ends up spilling out and into our public lives. And so what starts as a little heart indulgence can end up ruining our lives, and it can end up ruining the lives of other people. We've seen even in our own nation's history how the sordid private lives of our leaders end up changing the direction and shape of our own nation. The way we talk about high offices in our land. The expectations we have for leaders. The expectations of their character. In many ways, we have dispensed with expectations that our leaders will be men of character. And instead, we have to only focus on policy because no one of character is found for the office anymore, it seems. Well, maybe you might say, well, that's not me. I, I'm not a ruler. I'm not, I'm not a, a leader. I'm just an average Christian. Yes, that may be true. It may be true that your private life does not immediately end up burning a nation to the ground. But you do matter to the world around you, and so does the way that you live. You see, a population of, of humble people who want good for each other is a great, great, glorious gift to the world. Could you imagine a nation of people who are not filled with envy and burdened down by the rottenness of the bones? Could you imagine what their lives every day and every week would actually be like? Many people lament that we don't have better leaders, that we're, we're always given terrible choices when election time comes around. But isn't it true that, that our leaders are really a reflection of the soul of the people? That the way that they speak to one another, the way they engage with one another, the way they treat each other in debates, the way they take shots at each other, aren't they really an expression and a mirror image of the population and of the people? Our leaders are a reflection of our own souls. 
So maybe the core problem isn't that we have bad leaders, but that we as a people are envious and sinful and angry and bitter and heartsick. And those leaders are just a reflection of the deep soul sickness that infects all of us. And that's why we keep having awful leaders set before us time and time again. You see, our private sin, the way we live, does have an impact on our world, whether we are a world leader or whether we are a simple citizen, hopefully going to the, to the ballot box. See, Saul shows us the perils of jealousy and really of all private sins and the ways that they can start to affect our lives and our families and even our nation. The first point this evening. Second, we see the power of fear. Uh, this comes out a couple of times in, in the narrative. In verses, verses 12 and verse 15, it's stated very explicitly the fear that Saul is experiencing. It says, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. And then in verse 15, it says, when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. He stood in fearful awe of David. <clears throat> so whatever David does, Saul keeps finding more reasons to be afraid. He sees his power slipping. The people admire David, and they don't seem to admire Saul. And so Saul becomes afraid. And what does Saul do in his fear? He does what any, he does, he does what any worldly leader does. He doesn't pray. He doesn't go to God. Instead, he finds two political solutions. See, Saul has an initial plan, and his initial plan is, if I marry him to my daughter, he'll be beholden to me, right? If he doesn't die in battle, maybe I can make him a part of my royal family so that I can sort of neutralize the threat. This guy's not going to try to topple his own family. If I make him my family, he's neutralized. But here's the thing. God didn't tell Saul that his kingdom would be inherited by his son-in-law. He said the kingdom was going to be torn away and given to another. Saul cannot outmaneuver the plan of God. So Saul has a plan B, and his plan B is, well, I'll send him to fight the Philistines, right? Maybe uh, Saul won't have to do anything if David dies in battle. Perhaps he'll be so distracted by his new wife that an accident may happen in battle. By the way, this is not altogether different from something that's going to happen later in David's own life. As he sends a man to battle, and as he seeks to make sure that he does die in battle, the sin ends up coming back to visit David. So the very sin that we may judge Saul for here is something that shows up in the life of David. It goes to show us that even the great figures of Scripture are not spotless by any means. But here's what Martin Luther says about Saul's plan to send David into battle like this. He says, King Saul did not like David and would have liked to kill him. But since he wanted to be holy, he decided not to kill him himself, but to send him among the Philistines to be killed there so that his hand would remain innocent. Look at this beautiful Pharisaic holiness 
It can purify itself and stay pious as long as it does not kill with its own hand, though its heart may be crammed full of hate, anger, hate, and envy, of hidden and evil schemes of murder, and though its tongue may be loaded with curses and blasphemies. Well, this plan does backfire. In his fear, Saul hatches a plan that ends up strengthening David instead of destroying him, because at the end, the people love David even more. Everything he does here fails. By the way, this is a reminder of what we saw a few weeks ago in the evening service, right? God defeats Satan with his own weapons. He takes the very weapons that Satan takes and wields against his own en his enemies, and he uses them against those very enemies. And this backfires. It's another illustration of that principle. Everything that Saul does here fails. You see, Saul is going against the grain of the universe here. He is driven by his fear. He is resisting God's word because he doesn't want it to be so. What God has told Saul has made him fearful and desperate. And don't we understand that on some level? Right? Surely there are things that God says in his word that cause us to feel afraid, that cause us to tremble. Think of those examples in biblical history when God thundered from Mount Sinai and he told the people what he was like, they became afraid. When Josiah found the law in the temple, and, and when he read that law, the law did not seem in that moment like good news to Josiah. It was very gracious of God to allow Josiah to find the law, but it didn't come to him as good news. Instead, what it did was it exposed Israel's deep sin and problems, and Josiah became afraid because he heard God's word. There are other words that we hear from God in Scripture that may cause us to tremble as well. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3.12 that those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That makes me feel afraid if I want to be a godly person. I don't want to be persecuted. I want to be liked. I want to be comfortable. I don't want people to hate me. I want to be loved. Aren't there things that God says that make you fear too? You see, you can relate to Saul on some level. There are things that God will say that will make you tremble. The question is this. What do we do with our fear of God's truth? In the case of Israel, in the case of Josiah, even in the case of Paul's words in 2 Timothy, the right response to these things is to say, God has said this. What does he require of me then, since what he says is true? That's how we should respond. We respond to God's truth by admitting, you are right, and I am wrong. What can I do to conform myself, O oh God, to what you say, and not deny it, and hope that I can live in a world of my own making. We should not resist. We should not fight. We should not try to grab the bull by its horns, as it were. These things belong to God. They don't belong to us. When we hear God's word, do we, 
Do we rewrite it? Do we avoid it? Do we try to find an alternative? Do we try to grab hold of the reins of our life and make, make things happen differently? Because you see, that's what Saul is doing here in his fear. Or do we bow our head and say, Father, you are wiser than me. Protect me from sinful fear and help me to love and fear you alone. Those are very different responses to what God says. Well, Saul has no such inclination. Saul is a man of, if anything, Saul is a man of action. He will find a way, come hell or high water, to avoid God's word and to turn things to his own advantage as much as he is possibly able to even try. You see, tonight's passage is a reminder of the power of fear and of the sort of sins that can come with it. Third tonight, we see the protections of humility. Protections of humility. John Stott reminds us of something. He says, envy is the reverse side of a coin called vanity. Let me say that again. Envy is the reverse side of a coin called vanity. Nobody is ever envious of others who is not first proud of himself. In other words, there is sin under the sin. If we want to grow in Christ, one of the things we have to be willing to do is to look deep within our own hearts and ask God to probe and show us what it is that is inside of us that is giving rise to these sins. In order to be sanctified and holy people, we have to constantly be asking God to root out the sins that give rise to other sins. We need to ask God to do the deep heart work in us. You see, if we, if we think to ourselves, well, I'm envious, I need to stop being envious. If there are reasons in our own hearts why we are envious in the first place, then the sin of envy is not really being dealt with at all. Instead, we have to go deeper. We have to ask God, what is going on inside of my own heart? That when I see this person get recognition, or when I see this person get something that I wish I could have had, that instead of being glad for them, all I can think is, I should have that instead. What is going on in here? that I would go there. And see, that's the way sin is, though. Sin replicates and mutates within our own lives like a virus. And so if you want to see jealousy or envy in your life dealt with, you've got to go deeper than just the surface level. And as we see tonight, beneath the jealousy or envy, there is this deeper sin of pride, the way we think of ourselves, the way we love ourselves and prize ourselves above other people. Philip Melanchthon, a Lutheran writer, reminds us that pride is a violation of the first commandment. And he says it's a violation of the first commandment because it says we would rather than God and his will, we would rather ourselves be sitting on the throne. All right, it's a violation of the first commandment because we're suddenly saying, you know what, there is a God who would be greater than you, Lord. And it's me. Melanchthon says... Pride is kindled like a fire in the heart. Saul wishes to drive David out of the way in order that he alone may have authority. 
You see, Saul is in constant danger of being overwhelmed by his jealousy because of his pride. His pride exposes him to the dangers of anger and hatred. He is like a city without walls. I've used that phrase to describe Saul time and time again. Without the protection of the Spirit, without humility, this man is open to every sort of assault, and he has no way of resisting or fighting back. He has no protection. He has no armor against these sins because he is such a profoundly proud man. He wants the accolades. He wants the credit. He wants the honor. He wants the parade and the dancing and the songs. And he wants the credit for the thousands of Philistines. And he doesn't want to share it with anybody and certainly not David. But David is, in a sense, armored against the lure of jealousy and envy because verse 23 shows us David's heart. What does he say? David says, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law since I am a poor man and have no reputation? Here's the difference. Saul is a vain, proud man. And he wants everything that he thinks is coming to him. David is a humble man. You see, humility offers its own incredible protection. I, I never get tired of, of giving this reminder, but humility does not mean going around saying, Oh, I'm the worst, I'm the lowest, I'm terrible. Instead, humility means saying, You're more important than me. I care more about what happens to you than I care about what happens to me. A humble man riding with Saul into the city and hearing this song, what does he think? What should David be thinking as he's hearing Saul has slain his thousands, David his ten thousand, tens of thousands? What should David be thinking right now? I'm so glad Saul is being praised right now. That's humility. And this is David's brand of humility because his concern isn't that David is so bad or David is so pathetic. His concern is if you marry Saul's daughter off to a nobody, you're disrespecting your kingship and you're disrespecting your family name. Do you really want, of all the people you could have your daughter marry, your daughter to marry a simple shepherd? Is that really what you want, Saul? Can you imagine what would happen to Christians? Can you imagine what would happen to churches, to this land as a whole, if we were driven by the sort of humility that says, you before me. You before me. I care more about you. I care more about what happens to you. I care about more, more about your reputation than I do about mine. I care more about the outcome of your faith in life than I do about my own. How do you respond professionally when you see a colleague do well or when you see a colleague get promoted? How do you respond personally when you see somebody that you know and they have an achievement or they get something that you would like? How do you respond to that? I tell you this, we'd be protected from envy and jealousy if we saw ourselves for what we deserve and not what we want. 
You see, David is protected from jealousy by the armor of humility. Don't you yearn for that for yourself? If you find yourself caught up with an envious attitude or a jealous attitude, simply ask yourself something. Have I lost, have I lost sight of what my own heart is really like and what I really deserve? Have I forgotten that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior? Have I started to believe that deep down I deserve something better than what God has given me? You see, Saul is a warning to us of the perils of jealousy and the power of fear. But David here reminds us that there is spiritual protection in humility. In tonight's passage, Saul is a warning to us, but even more, David is a type of Christ. He's a person who causes us to look forward with anticipation to Jesus. How so? Think of this. Jesus was subjected to the jealousy of the Jewish leaders when he came into the world. The leaders were like Saul, right? They were these failed dinosaurs who were on their way out. And like Saul, their response to the threat of Jesus was not to bow the knee and to love Jesus. Instead, they tried to hold on to their leadership and they tried to even lash out at God's anointed. And of course, like Saul, they were driven by jealousy in their attacks. Matthew 27, 18 says, it was out of envy that they delivered Jesus up. It's right there in the text. If you want to know the incredible power of motivation, look no further than the Jewish leadership and look at Saul. The core of their problem of jealousy led them to all kinds of evils. Saul is trying to kill Israel's chosen king of Israel. And we know, of course, that Saul failed in this. But we also know in real history that the leadership of, of, of Israel actually did end up killing the real king of Israel. Saul failed to kill the king, but the Jewish leaders succeeded. Like Saul, they were driven by jealousy. Like Saul, yes, they were driven by fear, according to Mark eleven eighteen, The leaders sought to destroy Jesus because they feared him. Because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Jealousy. When it comes to David, Saul can either love him, as Jonathan does, or he can fear and hate and envy him and envy his glory the way that Saul does. And just like with David, no one gets to have a neutral stance toward Jesus either. What is your attitude toward Jesus? Picture your life as being like a little kingdom. And there's a throne in your little kingdom. And there's only one person who gets to sit on the throne of your little kingdom. And inside of each and every one of us, if we are a Christian, there is this there is this knowledge that God is the one who is supposed to sit on that little throne inside of our little hearts. And he's the one who's supposed to call the shots and tell us what our life is like. And the reality is, and the reality is, each of us wants to sit on that throne instead. Each of us wants to be the one instead of God. And Jesus is a threat to that little kingdom. He makes claims on your life. 
He makes demands upon you. The question is this, will you love Jesus the way that Jonathan does, and will you pledge your love to him? Or will you fear Jesus, and will you avoid Jesus, and will you envy Jesus in which that you could be the one receiving the glory in your life? You have to decide. Will you follow Jesus? Will you pledge your loyalty and love to him? There is only one right answer. Our Father, would you cause us to take seriously the warning of Saul? The warning he presents us of the danger of a life and a heart and soul that is turned in on ourselves. A soul that wants what we want, regardless of what you want. Would you protect us from that? At the same time, would you help us not to simply judge Saul, but to be driven by the warnings of this man's life toward your son who kept your law on our behalf in all the ways that Saul and even ourselves never could. You have given us your son, the humble one, the one who loved you, the one who gave his life for us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.